0: Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Dempster, I'm the director of the Melbourne Writers' Festival and I'm so excited to be here at the Sydney Opera House for this Festival of Dangerous Ideas event with Saray Walker. Saray Walker received her MFA in Creative Writing from Bennington College. As a magazine writer, her articles have appeared in Seventeen and Mademoiselle. She served as an editor and writer for Our Bodies, Ourselves, before moving to London and Paris to complete a PhD. Her first novel, Land, was published this year, and it's one of the best books I've read all year. Today, Saray will be talking about radical fat acceptance. One of the last bastions of acceptable discrimination is against fat people. Health arguments reinforce the social and cultural pressure on women, in particular, to avoid fatness at all costs. But is it possible to imagine things differently and help women to escape from the complex web of body image, food and weight concerns? To discuss these ideas and more, please join me in welcoming to the stage, Saray Walker.
1: Hello. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming out today. Get into my talk here. So several years ago, PBS, the American Public Broadcasting Service, ran a series on their website where they played old celebrity interviews that they had rediscovered. These interviews had aired decades ago, and then were put on a shelf, and no one had listened to them since until PBS found them. One of the interviews they broadcast was a radio interview from 1969 with Jim Morrison, who was, of course, the lead singer of The Doors. PBS only aired a short segment of this interview, but the segment was remarkable because in it, Jim Morrison talked about fat in a positive way. At the beginning of the exchange, the interviewer notes that Morrison has put on a lot of weight and asks if he's been eating a lot. Morrison responds, <clears throat> quote, You know, that's something that really bothers me. What's wrong with being fat? That's what I want to know. Why is it so onerous to be fat? I don't see anything wrong with fat, you know? End quote. I'm no expert on Jim Morrison, but it seems that his weight fluctuated a lot throughout his life. In the interview, he goes on to talk about his time as a UCLA student and how he was fat then, too. He says, quote, I felt so great. I felt like a tank, you know? I felt like a large mammal, a big beast. When I'd move through the corridors or across the lawn, I'd just feel like I could knock anybody out of my way, you know? I was solid, man. It's terrible to be thin and wispy because, you know, you could get knocked over by a strong wind or something. (laughs) Fat is beautiful." End quote. Jim Morrison's recollection of being fat here is obviously influenced by his status as a man, since it's difficult to imagine a woman saying she loved feeling like a big beast or a tank. (laughs) Nevertheless, to hear Jim Morrison, one of the biggest sex symbols of the 60s rock era, say that fat is beautiful, well, that's radical. It was radical at the time, and it's radical now, almost 50 years later. If the modern-day equivalent of Morrison, whoever that might be, Proclaim that fat is beautiful. You can bet it would shock people. When it aired several years ago, this rediscovered interview caused some buzz on social media and in the traditional media. When I heard it, I thought it was absolutely great, and I immediately sent out a tweet that said, Jim Morrison says fat is beautiful, and I included a link to the interview. When a few, within a few minutes of sending out this tweet, I received a response from a friend of mine. She was traveling in China at the time, in another time zone, and on the other side of the world. You see, she had seen my tweet that said, Jim Morrison says fat is beautiful. Her response to me was this, being fat is unhealthy. It causes high blood pressure and other health problems. When I read this comment from my friend, I was stung. Our popular culture is filled with nothing but contempt for fat people. Almost everything about fat people in our culture is negative and dehumanizing. Yet here was this one great Jim Morrison interview. Just one thing in a sea of hate. I was so excited about it, yet here was my friend trying to slap me down. Why? Once I recovered from my initial hurt reaction, I began to think that her response was curious. It wasn't actually a direct response to my tweet, She had not replied that she disagreed with Morrison's statement that fat is beautiful or something along those lines. Her comment that fat is unhealthy didn't seem to be directly connected to what Jim Morrison had said. Furthermore, did she think she was telling me something new? Did she think that I, as a fat person who at that time was in my mid-30s, had never before heard the idea that fat is unhealthy? Did she think that I had been living at the International Space Station, or perhaps in a cave, without access to the media? Did she think that I'd never gone to the doctor in my life? Of course not. Yet she still felt compelled to share this thought with me, which she must have known was something I'd heard countless times before. Not only that, but she risked hurting her friend's feelings to do this. So what was the point? I began to think that her response was born out of anger that when I wrote, fat is beautiful, this idea so outraged her and was so opposed to everything she'd been taught that she had to hit back in some way. Not surprisingly, she framed her comments with concern for the health of fat people, which is what often happens. At that time, I was still relatively new to the idea of fat acceptance, particularly to writing about it publicly. The reaction I received from my friend is something I have since received many, many, many times. So, rather than being surprised by it now, I fully expect it. Thanks to my book that was published in May, this reaction is now a regular part of my life. Anyone who speaks about fat acceptance knows this reaction well, so I've decided to give it a name. I call it Fat Derangement Syndrome. (laughs) You've all seen werewolf films, right? A werewolf by day is a normal human being. But when the full moon comes out, they turn into a frothing-at-the-mouth beast, a beast who must attack. Well, a person with fat derangement syndrome undergoes a similar transformation, but it's only internal. If a person with fat derangement syndrome encounters someone who says something positive about fat, for example, that fat is acceptable, that fat is beautiful, that human beings come in all shapes and sizes, and that each body has equal value, that people of all sizes can be healthy, and so on, this is the full moon for people with fat derangement syndrome. It unleashes the beast. As with the aforementioned counter with my friend, their attacks are often framed as concern for the poor misguided individual who would dare to say anything positive about fat. They spew tired remarks, fat is unhealthy, fat is bad, fat people get horrible diseases, fat people are on the road to a horrific death. Sometimes they even say things like, stop glorifying obesity. The person on the receiving end has heard all of this before, but people with fat derangement syndrome are, after all, suffering from derangement, and so they can't be expected to be rational, or even knowledgeable. Despite their bizarre obsession with the lives of fat people, those with fat derangement syndrome don't actually believe there are any fat people, but only thin people who have expanded thanks to eating too much. (laughs) Calories in, calories out, they love to say assuming that fat people can just stop pigging out all day, and then they'll magically shrink back into their normal, thin bodies. Never mind that human bodies are endlessly diverse, not cut out with a cookie cutter, and that dieting has been proven not to work for most people. Again, fat derangement syndrome is not rational. You wouldn't expect a werewolf to be rational, would you? People with fat derangement syndrome have no choice but to make their inane comments. It's required before they can retake their human form. Since my novel was released in May, I've been subjected to many such attacks. My book might be reviewed on a website, in the comments section, people with fat derangement syndrome will be ranting and raving that fat is unhealthy. Or since my novel deals specifically with the experiences of fat women, men with fat derangement syndrome are fond of saying, fat women are unattractive and you can't make me be attracted to them. The fear is apparently widespread that in some sort of dystopian future an oppressive government will take control and go door to door, forcing men to be attracted to fat women. (laughs) Suzanne Collins, if you're listening, forget Katniss Everdeen, there's your next novel. Speaking of novelists, just last week I was in Melbourne for the Melbourne Writers Festival. I did a live radio interview along with the British novelist, Will Self. He was interviewed about his book, but then when it was my turn to talk about my fat-positive novel, Will's fat derangement syndrome kicked in, and he hijacked my interview, attacking me by stating that fat is unhealthy and that it's natural to prefer thin bodies over fat ones, etc. So as you can see, fat derangement syndrome is widespread. More people have it than not. Many of you in the audience suffer from it, even if you don't know it. You might think that people with fat derangement syndrome are just your garden-variety bigots and bullies, but these are not the only types of people who have the syndrome. Far from it. If they were, it would be easier to combat. Most of the people I meet with fat derangement syndrome are otherwise open-minded, liberal-thinking individuals. They have enlightened views on race, class, gender, sexual orientation, and so on. In fact, I've met people who consider themselves to be political radicals who suffer from fat derangement syndrome. These individuals are invested in critiquing oppressive social systems from government to capitalism to media. But when it comes to fat, many of them will pretty much believe anything a pharmaceutical company or a weight loss guru tells them. The idea that fat is okay is simply a step too far for these radical thinkers. In fact, the far left often uses fat-shaming imagery to depict capitalist fat cats and the rich devouring the poor. I met a young woman once in London at a fat studies conference who said this conference was the only place she had ever felt accepted. She said she had tried to join all sorts of left-wing groups, even anarchists, but fat people weren't really accepted there. So the idea that fat is okay is clearly a dangerous idea. It's a taboo that frightens, angers, and disgusts people from across the political spectrum. And while I use humor here and in my novel to explore this issue, because I think humor can be powerful, this is, of course, not a funny matter, particularly for people who actually inhabit fat bodies. Fat people face discrimination in all walks of life, sometimes even violence, and the abuse and marginalization directed at fat people can result in a reduced quality of life and profound psychological distress. In the classic 1983 anthology, Shadow on a Tightrope, writing by women on fat oppression, a writer going by the name Kelly writes of fat people, quote, for a society that pretends to be so concerned about our health, we certainly take a lot of public and private abuse, end quote. The question of why this stigma exists is not easy to answer. Contempt for fat bodies is certainly not a constant throughout history, nor is it something programmed in us from an evolutionary perspective. It is, rather, the result of social and political conditioning. Historians and scholars date the origins of fat stigma in Western culture and a shift to preference for thinner bodies to the late 19th century. Amy Erdman Farrell, in her book Fat Shame, Stigma, and the Fat Body in American Culture, writes, quote, Before the end of the 19th century, only the privileged, in terms of both wealth and health, could become fat. Just as industrialization and urbanization transformed every other aspect of life in the United States, it also transformed bodies. As the 20th century progressed, more people experienced sufficient wealth, lifestyles became more sedentary, the development of new farming methods and better transportation systems meant that food was more plentiful and relatively cheap, and healthcare improved. All of this meant that more people could gain weight and keep it on. At this point, fatness became a marker, dividing the rich and the poor. But now, unlike in earlier centuries, hefty weight connoted not high status, but a person whose body was out of control, whose reason and intellect were dominated and overwhelmed by the weight of obesity. As the meanings of fat and thin shifted, moving up the socioeconomic ladder usually meant aspiring to a thinner body." End quote. Ferrell goes on to argue that, quote, Fat stigma is deeply rooted in the development of ideas about race, gender, and civilization. Fatness was a motif used to identify inferior bodies, those of immigrants, former slaves, and women. And it became a telltale sign of a superior person falling from grace." These complex origins of fat stigma are unknown to most people now. Today, we live in the age of the obesity epidemic, or in other words, fat panic, where governments, the media, and so-called medical experts claim that the world is headed towards a fat apocalypse, or fat-pocalypse. (laughs) Fat people are blamed for problems ranging from national security to global warming. In the United States, this kind of rhetoric comes straight from the White House. In reality, obesity rates have been leveling off for some time now. Yet, obesity epidemic rhetoric is a handy way to hide prejudice against fat people behind health jargon. This tactic also has historical origins. Erdman writes that, historically, quote, connotations of fatness and of the fat person, lazy, gluttonous, greedy, immoral, uncontrolled, stupid, ugly, and lacking in willpower, preceded and, and then were intertwined with explicit concern about health issues. Every diet that has emerged on the scene has come with a larger social agenda and cultural meaning. In all of them, fat is a social as well as physical problem." End quote. The stigma against fat bodies and the dehumanization of fat people is obviously a complex issue with no simple explanations and solutions. Around the world, writers, thinkers, activists, artists, and others address this issue from a variety of perspectives. In the interdisciplinary academic field of fat studies, researchers from disciplines including feminism, sociology, anthropology, medicine, law, economics, geography, literature, history, and so on, critique dominant narratives about fat. At a grassroots level, fat activists are leading a civil rights movement focusing on the rights of fat individuals. The Health at Every Size movement includes nutritionists, physicians, and other health experts who are challenging obesity epidemic rhetoric and are shifting the paradigm about health. There are artists, filmmakers, fashion designers, athletes, and even novelists like me exploring these issues from our own unique perspectives. Thus far, I've been discussing the stigma of all fat people face, women, men, and children alike. But of course, fat women face a particular kind of prejudice. Fat stigma mixed with sexism and misogyny, and for many women, racism, ableism, classism, ageism as well. Women are the sex more closely identified with the body, and our value and worth as human beings is tied closely to our physical appearance much more than it is for men. What the ideal feminine body should look like is something that has shifted throughout time. Writing about our contemporary ideals of femininity, the feminist philosopher Sandra Lee Barkey has written that the ideal feminine body is achieved through a series of disciplinary practices, the first of which is to, quote, produce a body of a certain size and general configuration, end quote. Barkey continues, writing that, quote, under the current tyranny of slenderness, women are forbidden to become large or massive. They must take up as little space as possible and must try to assume the body of early, early adolescence, slight and unformed, a body lacking flesh or substance, a body in whose very contours the image of immaturity has been inscribed." Quote. As Bartke writes, for most women, this is primarily achieved through dieting, which disciplines the body's hungers. There are many other disciplinary practices that Bartke writes about, including restrictions on how women move our bodies, taking up far less space than men, to treating our bodies as an ornamental surface that must be freed from the signs of aging, body hair, and enhanced with makeup, fashion, hairstyling, and so on. But the requirement of thinness is what I'm most interested in now. As Bartke explains, those who are not thin, those who have failed at disciplining their female bodies in the appropriate way, face severe punishment. Rarely are these official punishments passed down through some official governing body. Rather, as Bartke writes, quote, the disciplinary power that inscribes femininity in the female body is everywhere, and it is nowhere. The disciplinarian is everyone, yet no one in particular, end quote. Bartke writes about how women's bodies are policed through a constant state of surveillance. This surveillance comes in the form of a normalizing male gaze, one that is external, but also one that is completely internalized by women, so that we police our own bodies and each other's bodies. The sanctions we face for being fat, for not having an appropriately disciplined body, include bullying and outright abuse, but also more insidious consequences, such as social exclusion and discrimination. For women, having a feminine body is, as Barkey writes, quote, crucial to women's sense of herself as female and to her sense of herself as a sexually desiring and desirable subject, end quote. Therefore, fat women and women who do not adhere to the feminine ideal in other ways are made to feel that we are not real women. In my novel, my fat heroine feels that the word woman has never felt right being applied to her, since she has always been excluded from feeling like a woman because she is fat. So, these issues that I'm discussing here aren't simply an issue of appearance, but rather go to the very heart of our identities. The message that we should be thin, and that we're failures of women if we're fat, is everywhere around us and impossible to avoid. It is a relentless form of political propaganda. I want to turn again to the book Shadow on a Typerope, this time to an essay by Martha Courteau. She writes, Pretend you are a fat woman and watch television for a day. Count how many messages there are which tell you you are ugly and must change. Listen to how many remarks your friends make about being too fat and diets they are on and having to lose weight when they are already thinner than you will ever be. Look through magazines for a positive image of a fat woman. Then imagine what it is like to be a fat woman walking down the street at the mercy of everyone who has been given permission from this society to hate and despise her. What would you do when they called you names? Are you surprised then that fat women often do it stay at home, do not get the exercise they need, sometimes eat for comfort? Are you surprised? How would you feel if you saw a bumper sticker which said, Save the Whales, Harpoon Fat Chicks? This was written in 1983, but sadly things have not changed much since then. Some of you might be wondering how thinness became the ideal for women. As I outlined earlier, the history of fat stigma is complex and dates back to the late 19th century. However, for women, there are additional considerations. For example, throughout the 20th century, as women gained more rights, the focus on thinness increased. In the 1920s, American women were granted the right to vote, and there was a burgeoning feminist movement. Yet at the same time, the dieting culture began to flourish, and a super-thin ideal in the form of a flapper came into vogue. In the 1950s, in the post-war period without a feminist movement, a slightly more voluptuous figure came into fashion. Think Marilyn Monroe. But as we see in the late 1960s, with the reemergence of a feminist movement, the obsession with thinness reappeared. Think Twiggy. And has never ceased, only growing more extreme. So as many writers and historians have pointed out, when women gain more power, and when women are allowed to take up more space in society, there is pressure for women to become physically smaller and to obsess over all aspects of our appearance, which which distracts us from doing more important things. So one of the tasks I've been given today in my talk is to explore whether it's possible to imagine things differently and to help women escape from the complex web of body image, food, and weight concerns. As I explained earlier, there are lots of smart, talented, and passionate people working hard to make our world a better place for fat people. But of course, change usually happens slowly, and we have to find a way to live our lives in the meantime. We can't force the world to change, and can't force people to stop the abuse, but we can change the way we react to it, and, how the, and we can change the way that we see our own bodies. This is not easy, of course. In fact, it is incredibly difficult. And it's also not fair to place the onus for change on the shoulders of individuals when the difficulties we face are not individual problems, but large, structural, societal problems. Unfortunately, nothing about this situation is fair. One of the things a novelist can do is imagine a different reality. In my novel, I didn't imagine a different world. On the contrary, I worked very hard to betray the brutality of the world we currently live in. What I did imagine is that the heroine of my novel learns to love and embrace her fat body, and to escape the limitations of our misogynist, body-hating culture as much as possible, while still acknowledging that one cannot actually escape society. At the beginning of my novel, Plum, the heroine, weighs 300 pounds, which is equivalent to 137 kilos, or 22 stone. We start off in familiar terrain. Plum has tried to lose weight since she was a teenager, but nothing has worked. She is 29 years old when the novel begins and is scheduled for weight loss surgery. Plum is desperate to shrink in size, to properly discipline her body so that she can feel attractive and escape a life of marginalization and abuse. Usually, in these kinds of stories, weight loss is inevitable. The fat heroine, who is usually not very fat to begin with, loses weight, which results in her finding true love and everlasting happiness. Yet in Dietland, spoiler alert, Plum does not end up losing weight. At the end of the novel, she weighs the same, if not more, than she did at the beginning. I wanted to rewrite the traditional story about fat women in fiction, and I think fiction can be a powerful way to help us figure out how to rewrite the narratives of our real lives as well. When I began writing the novel, I knew I wanted to explore what it's like to be a fat woman in our contemporary society, since this experience is not really examined in a serious way in literature, or anywhere in popular culture. A few years ago, the Wall Street Journal published an article where they discussed this very issue. In a society obsessed with fat, fat people are in large part missing from fiction. And of course, the same thing can be said of film and television. This is yet another sign of the dehumanization of fat people. Those of us in marginalized groups need to see ourselves represented in the culture. The American writer Juno Diaz has commented on this, writing, You know, vampires have no reflection in the mirror. There's this idea that monsters don't have reflections in a mirror. And what I've always thought isn't that monsters don't have reflections in a mirror. It's that if you want to make a human being into a monster, deny them, at the cultural level, any reflection of themselves. And growing up, I felt like a monster in some ways. I didn't see myself reflected at all. I was like, yo, is something wrong with me? That the whole society seems to think people like me don't exist? End quote. This speaks to my experience as well. I knew that I wanted to write about the experience of being fat, but I'll admit now that Plum's ending was in question, and that the idea that she would remain fat and learn to embrace and celebrate her body was an idea that scared me in the beginning. I was new to fat acceptance, and I couldn't even imagine what this would look like. Writing the novel was the process of figuring this out. Did I even dare to write this kind of story? Through the process of researching and writing I discovered that the process of coming to love and embrace a fat body or any kind of non-normative body means undergoing a process of deprogramming. It means ridding yourself of the negative, toxic thoughts you have been taught about your body and internalized. I want to return to that essay by Martha Courteau again. Um, She's talking about how she feels judged by the way that other people look at her and that she cannot escape their judgment. But she writes, These cruelties, now in adulthood, have taken their place within me. When they speak to me, it sounds like my own voice speaking, telling me how unworthy I am. It tells me not to risk when risk is the only thing I can do to survive. It tells me over and over again that I am fat and ugly, fat and ugly, fat and ugly, lazy, stupid, greedy, devouring, that I eat too much, take up too much space, that I do not deserve love. At the end of this chain of hatred lies a monster in wait, ready to kill all that is self-loving in me. And the enemy within has so much material from the outside to batter me with. Fat women in this culture are battered women. And somewhere always in me is the kernel of pure self, which is loving to myself, which appreciates the strength and joy in my body, which tells me I do indeed deserve my presence on this earth. As Martha writes in her essay, we must find that kernel of pure self within us. For many of us, it's battered and bruised, but it's there. Plum struggles to find this in the novel. I just want to read an example of one of the ways that she's struggling with this. Um, This is when she sort of begins to transform, and she's in a dressing room trying on very colorful clothes, because normally she only wears all black. There was a phantom woman in my mind that I was comparing myself to, and I had to force her from the dressing room. When she was gone, I looked at my body, the body that had kept me alive for nearly 30 years without any serious health problems, the body that had taken me where I needed to go and protected me. I had never appreciated or loved the body that had done so much for me. I'd thought of it as my enemy, as nothing more than a shell that enclosed my real self, but it wasn't a shell. The body was me. I removed the clothes and stood naked before the mirrors, turning this way and that. I was round and cute in a way I'd never seen before. Writing Dietland for me was exploring this process of deprogramming via my protagonist, but then I ended up deprogramming myself at the same time. An important part of this process is exposing yourself to new ideas and reading books, essays, and articles by the kinds of writers I was discussing earlier. People who are working to dismantle our fat-shaming, misogynist culture. Another part of this process of deprogramming is finding a community of like-minded people, either in person, online, or both, who face similar struggles that you can work through together so that you don't feel alone. It's important to embrace the idea that this is a group struggle, a political struggle, and a feminist struggle. This is a fight. Again, there is nothing, nothing natural about hating fat bodies. We are taught to hate them, and we can unlearn this behavior. In Dietland, Plum's process of deprogramming is intense. It shakes her life to its foundation and makes her question who she is as a person and what kind of future she might have. She has never been able to imagine her future self as fat. When she first considers the reality that she will remain fat for the rest of her life, she envisions her future as a calendar stretching into the future, and each page is blank. A fat future self is unimaginable. For many fat people, our future ideal selves are thin. Fat is only temporary. One of the major struggles Plum faces in the novel is learning to imagine her future in the body she has. This is something she doesn't know how to do because there are very few examples of this in our culture. The notion that a fat person can remain fat, not lose weight, and learn to love their body as it is, is a radical idea, a dangerous and threatening idea, an idea that is unimaginable to most people. But a novel allows readers to live vicariously through a character who goes through an experience like this. Unlike any other art form, a novel can allow readers to see things from another person's point of view, to essentially live in their skin. A 2013 study showed that reading a novel affects the human brain in ways that are visible on scans for days afterwards. The authors of the study write that, it is plausible that the act of reading a novel places the reader in the body of the protagonist, which can alter the brain. Since my novel was published, I've seen the power of what a kind of novel like this can do. The scenario I set up in the novel, what if a woman can be fat and happy? What if she can let go of the burden of hating herself, of trying to change herself and accept herself instead? Has electrified readers, it has made the impossible seem possible. I've received messages from readers who've said that for the first time in their lives, they don't try to hide but proudly wear colorful clothes, like plum, or that they've thrown out their bathroom scales. I've also received many other much more personal stories. As the author, I also lived in the body of my protagonist as I wrote her story, and thanks to her, I began to envision a different future for myself as well, which I have now put into practice. I realize we can live differently in ways that might at first seem radical and scary. I learned that the first, most important step is being able to imagine that it's possible. <laughs>